Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Suitcase and The Scribe with award-winning journalist Scott Burnside and former NHL goaltender Mike McKenna, a member of the Nation Network of Podcasts and delivered by DoorDash. Hey everybody, Scott Burnside back for another edition of the Suitcase and the Scribe podcast. Mike McKenna, beautifully lit as always in St. Louis, Missouri. And joining us today, what a treat to have Dave Poulin joining us. Longtime NHL, I have to look at my stats here. 724 NHL games, member of the Flyers Hall of Fame, 530 points. Great. A uh, decade as the head man at Notre Dame's hockey. Uh, I'm looking at your title here, VP Hockey Ops in Toronto. Now one of the top analysts at TSN. And, and Dave, I want you, is this true or not, that Dosakis actually called you to be the world's most interesting man on their ad campaign, but you were too busy? Is that true or not? Is that true? <laughs> that is Absolutely not true. There's nothing interesting about me, Scotty. I just, I do have a guy though that tells me that I've reinvented myself more than Madonna. So, <laughs> gee, you know what? Just keep going and keep doing. And and I've been blessed with a life in hockey. Um, I did have to leave coaching though because I couldn't get the recruits that I was recruiting, uh, including the guy in the bottom left hand corner of this screen, to actually say yes to me when I was recruiting them when I was at the <laughs> University of Notre Dame. So I don't even know if you know that, Scotty. I recruited that I- Michael McKenna and wasn't able to land them. <laughs> Well, you know, that's, that's kind of our background here. And for people listening that may not know this, I mean, I think I was maybe 16 years old, an unofficial visit to come through Notre Dame and Dave was the head coach there. And um, at that point, man, I still was really unsure, unsure really what hockey meant to me, you know, coming from the North American league and St. Louis and nobody from here had ever played in the NHL. And I didn't know where I was headed, but you, you left, you left, you left a very positive impression on me. And we had a St. Louis pipeline. We had players like Connor Dunlop that had come through and Neil Komodowski. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I always looked to Notre Dame as being one of those kind of gateway schools for our city. Um, and, but Dave, you've, you've had, you've had such a diverse career within hockey, you know, and, and I look at that and I just think to myself, how do you end up being an analyst when you have all this experience? What drew you to this yeah. side, to the media side that made it seem like it was the next path for your career? It just happenstance as much as anything, Mike. And I actually stepped outside of the hockey world a couple different occasions. Um, I did early in my career after two years of playing, my agent said to me, you're going to law school, MBA school, you're going to work. 
And I looked at him and I said, I'm the captain of the Philadelphia Flyers. I just went to the Stanley Cup finals. I have a job. <laughs> and he said, the average career is 4.2 years. You're halfway done. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, oh, you do work for me, right? You're my agent. <laughs> and so I spent one summer looking for jobs and interviewed with a bunch of really cool people. So this is 85 and ended up with two guys from a brokerage firm that was pretty high profile at the time named Drexel Burnham Lambert. And so I went to work on Wall Street for six plus years. Um, well, first with a big firm and then spun off and, and had a little broker dealer in late stage arbitrage. So I was kind of always doing different things. And then I also, after Notre Dame, I had a couple of years as an athletics director there after coaching and, and I got into the executive search industry in Chicago, totally, totally removed from anything to do with sports. But sports kept drawing me back in. And I ended up doing a couple searches in the sports field. And then I woke up in the morning, Mike, and, and I was looking at box scores. I was in the office real early, 6 a.m. in the morning, and I'd be looking at box scores. And this, so this is 2008, nine, and I was involved in an incredibly complex search um, in which we put the executive director of the NFLPA, Demora Smith, in that mm -hmm. position. And so I was involved, whole, I was living in the NFL and kept my eye on the NHL. And when Brian Burke um, got the job in Toronto, I literally reached out to him and said, look, I want to be involved. And he was like, oh, you're doing great in the search industry. You know, <laughs> and I said, no, Burke, I'm not a search guy. I'm, I'm a hockey guy. So getting back into it on the management side. And then um, when Brendan Shannon came in in 2014, he basically cleaned house and, and all of us were out. But, but it was a, a weird gap because Claude Lozell and I overlapped with him for about three months um, because there was a lot of stuff to be done. You had the arbitrations, you had the draft, you had free agency and, and Claude and I um, looked after a lot of that stuff. And so then he, uh, Shanahan went ahead and made the changes in late July. So I had, I just didn't know what I was going to do. And um, Sportsnet had just got the rights for the big deal. And so they reached out, I knew a producer there and they reached out, pretty quickly and said, Hey, you want to talk? And I was on my way into lunch with, uh, with Sportsnet and when a team called and literally on my way into lunch and they said, Hey, we, we want to uh, chat with you about a position. And I said, well, I'm actually just on my way in to have a TV conversation, which I have really no interest in. And um, so I'll call you back. And then simultaneously, Steve Dryden from TSN called uh, and so I had a couple of different things going and, and Sportsnet said, look, we have this new TV contract. It's a 12 year deal. We've got all kinds of work for you. You know, you can do whatever you want to do. You can do games. You can be a studio guy, whatever. Well, I didn't really want to work that much. <laughs> and TSN <laughs> said, um, we basically have nothing for you. We don't know exactly where we're going. Um, we don't have any seats and, but we, we like you to come aboard and just see what happens. And I said, okay, that sounds more like what I, what I want to do. I don't really, I don't really want to do it, but it might be a good landing spot. It, you know, it might lead to something else. So I started on, on Halloween night on TH2N, that's Hockey Tonight, the, the late night show, which is a much, much missed product in my mind, you know, because you could watch the whole NHL in a half an hour or an hour, whichever length we were. And it was really late night 
and I was in a studio, you know, till two 30 in the morning with uh, a producer an AP um, Glenn Sheeler was the host and two cameramen. And, and I remember leaving one night after like a San Jose overtime game and thinking, nah, you know what, I'm starting to get into this a little bit, starting to enjoy it. And, and leaving, and there's about 20 people leaving the studio. And I'm like, where are these people? Like, who are these people? <laughs> I didn't understand there were producers and directors and studio people and, you know, voice people. And I had no idea the TV industry at all. And I had a really good um, producer and director there. And then it just morphed into more opportunities, Mike. It wasn't, it wasn't going in with any sort of a plan. And what I really like about it today is that I live in about seven or eight totally different silos right now. And so if I'm getting my schedule in September, the first thing uh, on the schedule is panels, in-studio panels for the Leaf games. And there's usually 32 of those um, with exhibition games. And so that's the first thing on my schedule. The next thing has morphed into, they asked me, you know, a couple of years later, do you want to do games in, in an arena? And I said, yeah, I'd like to get back in the arena. So I'd never tried that before. And that now has led to Montreal. And so Mike Johnson and I pretty much split that up with Brian Ludrick and I'll do another 30 Montreal games. Maybe I'll leave later today for New Jersey and I'll do Montreal there tomorrow night. So those two jobs are totally different. The studio and the color broadcast. And then I do the shows. I do Gino Retta's that's hockey show. I did that Monday night. I'll do that a couple of times a week. Um, I'll do sports center stuff. I'll do all the big shows, the draft, you know, the draft show or not the draft show, but the um, trade, trade deadline. deadline show. Yeah. The free agency shows. And then I do the radio and enjoy that. I do Ottawa. I do Toronto, I'm doing Winnipeg. And so it's like you live in all these different worlds that kind of bang into each other. You're almost in an orbit somewhere and in your planets are bumping into each other, but they're really different jobs. And, you know, you, you prep, and some of them cross over and some of them don't. And you have, you don't work for a team, but you work for teams. And you, you know, you get to know Montreal better. Clearly, Ottawa, I do Ottawa games. I do Winnipeg games as well. And it's just a, it's a really diverse life within hockey. Yeah. And what, even they, from a communication standpoint, Scotty, you, you talk to so many people and they're willing to talk to you because you're not tied to anything, right? And so you, yeah. you end up getting all this information, which just helps you do your job. Well, and what's interesting, Dave, about uh, about how your career has evolved even further than the the broadcast or radio analysis, and and you and Mike share a, a path here, and I'm curious, maybe you've had you know similar experiences with it, but both you and Mike, are, you know, have delved into writing, which and I'm I, I'm proof positive anyone can do it, but you know, Dave, you do a column for the Toronto star every week. Mike obviously writes regularly for daily Faceoff. but you know, for people who come to writing later in your life or in your career and Dave, you, well, I've talked to Mike about it and I've also talked to you about it, Dave, but what's that experience been like for you to, to take that step? Because it's maybe it's not a natural step um, in a way that broadcast probably might be more seamless than the writing. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. No, you're, you're correct. And I'm interested to hear, you know, what Mike's challenges are. And so mine's a regular column in Sunday's paper. This started because a friend of mine got involved with a group that bought the Toronto star. I mean, it was as simple as that. And, and he reached out to me and he said, Hey, do you want to write a column? And I said, 
about what? And he said, well, whatever you want. And I said, well, I've never written before. And I said, okay, so I will try it. And I wrote six columns uh, between 1,000 and 1,500 words, just about nothing. Like I wrote about uh, my first American Thanksgiving. I wrote about golf puzzles, like just to see if I could put a pen on paper and write a column. And um, I do have a brilliant editor at home and she reads everything and she takes it from a perspective of that. She's not a super hockey person, yeah. but understands the game well enough to say, this doesn't make sense. Or I like this, or this is, um, so we had this little ritual and on Saturday mornings, we get up, make a big pot of coffee and I'd write. And then she'd edit it. We'd carve it up. And then they said they wanted it on Friday because they wanted to post it online. Sometimes like, oh, okay, that doesn't fit my schedule. Um, but it's been great. It's 55 columns in. And I'm stunned that I have found content for 55 columns. And it, it's I've hit a couple blocks, like partway through every one, I don't like it. And, and she just laughs. And she just, you know, it, but it's about getting the words on paper and getting started. So I've developed this little system and I put ideas in my phone and I'll have a couple of different ideas brewing at the same time. And I'll put the ideas in my phone. And then on Thursday or Friday, I'll check with the editor, say, here's what I'm thinking. So we don't overlap. And um, most times he's like, okay, go ahead. And then I print out that first email to myself on my phone and I carve it up with writing on the actual page and just drop stuff in. And then I start to write. And that's the key is the willingness to start to put it onto paper. And that's what I, at the start didn't understand. I wanted it perfect in my head before I started. And that's not the way it works. And um, I also had a, a good friend who wrote for the Washington post and I would send him stuff early and man, did he carve me up. Like he carved me up. Like, don't use the word very. If it's something, it's something. Forget very. You know, like so you know, all these, you know, little things. And, and he was a guy I'd gone to school with. And he's written some hockey novels, but he's a uh, New York Times and a Washington Post writer. And um, Brian Gruley. So look up some of his hockey stuff. Uh, you may know him, Scotty, from yeah, the mystery from industry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's got the good the little hockey theme that goes on in in some of his work. It's interesting. Yeah, kind of like Northern Michigan, you know, yeah. that type of thing, where, which is where Brian grew up. But I went to Notre Dame. That's how I knew him. And so, um, so the writing has been it, it's a challenge. Like I, I can't, you know, it, it is. It's and sometimes after I write a column, I'm like, wow, that's I, I, a little surprised that I actually wrote it. And then some events happen. Um, you know, tough and, you know, I mean, this week I'm, I'm thinking, you know, depending on what happens with the week, do I write about Mike Bossy and my first encounters with him and, and, you know, how he was different in his day, um, and you know, what it meant to play against him, to meet him for the first time at an all-star game. And so, you know, I will, I wrote about Walter Gretzky when I had that opportunity and, and just about, you know, anything that's timely changes the locker rooms, try and get a little different perspective in there, but it's a challenge. I am mm -hmm. not, <laughs> I have way too much respect to say it's not a challenge. Mike, have you run into a block at any point where you're just like, I don't, I don't know what to write about. I'm hearing a lot of the things that you're saying being similar to my 
experience with it in that the ideation process is a challenge to begin with sometimes, you know, and for me, I do a lot of analytical content that there's really no shortage of. I can do those all day long. If you give me a clip, I can, you know, write five, 700 words on that. No problem. But when I'm really digging deeper to try to find something that I find to be engaging or intriguing or just different, the hardest process to me is getting the first paragraph done. And I will go in circles with it until I get it right, or it's compelling, or I'm such a perfectionist that I can drown myself at times. And I've had moments where I have to walk away from a project for maybe a night or half hour because I'm too close to it. And then once I walk in and I come back and revisit something, it works pretty well. But, I, you know, I think for me, I, I kept writing throughout my career and it's not, I took one class of journalism in college, but it's amazing to me the things that stand out from there that I learned, that I remembered, you know, anything less than 10, write the number, anything greater than 10, use the number. Like these things I remembered. And I learned those at St. Lawrence University in one class. But I, I think for me, it's really just been about listening to my my mentors and editors and trying to get it right. When Frank Suravali or Scott comes back at me with, hey, make your sentences punchy, use punctuation, short paragraphs, you know, like I've filtered out so many words now from my own right. vocabulary. There's so many fillers out there. When I hear somebody say at the end of the day, I want to jump off my roof. I can't handle it because you're just filling space. And I always think, well, what about it? What about in the morning? Or what about in the afternoon? You know, like I, I just, you become hyper conscious of vocabulary and you try Very not much to waste so, space. But, but in so, college, you were trying to get to a thousand words. That's absolutely. I was. And that's why, <laughs> like, listen, I wasn't a great, I wouldn't say a great research student, but I was a good writer and I could get around my own research because I knew I could write my way out of it. And so while I was playing, I kept active with it. And, you know, now I'm in a state where I write every single day and it's, it flows pretty well. Um, but man, everything you've said what about time media, of day, what time of day are you a writer? Uh, usually by about noon, because I've got a goal, a daily goalie matchup that I write for daily faceoff that I have to wait on the starting goaltenders, figure out who's that's going to be. And by that point, I can usually do my matchup by one, you know, about lunchtime. And then if I'm going to write my bigger pieces, that's afternoon and they take me okay. three, four five hours. So, um, so much of what you said about media is the same as I've experienced. It's, it's diversification of what you can do. Can you be a total package? You know, I, can you write, do TV broadcast, all those things. Um, and that's why you have so much value, Dave, is because you've, you're diverse in what you do. You have diverse interests. And a lot of us in hockey don't have that. Um, yeah. When I started but, writing, my first thought was, am I going to tell you this? And same way on TV, if they say, okay, what about this player? What about this person? I say, am I going to tell this to you from my teammate standpoint, from an opposing player standpoint, from someone who's just watching in the league standpoint? Am I going to tell it to you from a coach's standpoint, from a manager's standpoint, or a fan standpoint? Because I'm a hockey mm-hmm. fan. Yeah. And, or am I going to tell it to you from a broadcast standpoint? So, that's what is immediately, even when a play happens on the ice, that's what's going through my Rolodex. How am I going to explain this? Like what, mm-hmm. what angle am I going to take on this? On a Martin San Louis, on a Joel Edmondson coming back, on a Austin Matthews right now, um, you know, whatever topic it is, how am I going to explain that to you? Yeah. And you touched on, you touched on one player there, Dave, that's doing pretty well. I mean, you're pretty close to the Toronto Maple Leafs and see them an awful lot. I am. Uh, 
I mean, you, you mentioned Mike Bossy earlier and um, you know, it's, I, I always have kind of had this weird fascination with Bossy because I never saw him play, you know, and he was such an amazing goal scorer, but I never got to really witness that. Do you see similarities in what Austin Matthews is doing? Because he's the, he's to me, the best goal scorer we've seen in hockey in a, in a while. And I, that's not to take anything away from Alex Ovechkin who's been an absolute machine, but Ovi still needs a setup, man. And Matthews may have that with Marner, but Matthews can get the puck on his stick and enter his own and score at will by himself if he wants to. Like it's on his blade. Is it that unique with Matthews? Or should we really look at this as truly beyond generational with what he's doing right now? Uh, yes, he scored three goals on Monday night. One of them, and, and I broke this down last night, one of them, Honestly, when he picked the puck up, he knew where Marner was in the ice, that he wasn't in the play. He knew it was bunting with him who was not getting the puck. <laughs> it just wasn't. So he knew it was a shot opportunity right away. And so he ripped it, you know, past Vasilevsky on the far side. Second one, um, Marner's the disher. He's going to a spot and it's a deflection right in front of the net. Third one, he picks up and he's looking for Marner to create a two-man game that's going to come back to him. And I do think the, the column I wrote on Sunday actually was that he was a natural scorer. And those are two words. You could almost say oxymoron. You really could because it's really hard. And by the way, someone's trying to stop you. Radical Gudis mm -hmm. is trying to stop you or, you know, or the top um, line from the other team will always be trying to stop Austin. Matthews. Right. Then the defenseman, then the goaltender. So it's like layers. And I don't think he's like bossy though. I, I, here's the word that I think about with bossy. And I went head to head with him and they looked this up 22 times. Um, elegant. It's an elegant scorer. Like there was a grace to him and a lawn to him that just was different, particularly for that day and age of rough and tumble. Cause he came in, you know, in 76, 77 and Man, oh, man, when you watched him, you had to be careful not to watch him. And, like, because you would have to realize, okay, well, I'm actually on the ice supposed to stop him, not just watch him. Um, you know, I've got a really good seat here. And in, I told a story in the studio about him having a hat trick one night against us on Long Island. And Rick Tockett was minus three and hadn't left the ice from starting the game. So he started the game. Bossy scored 30 seconds in. Keenan was mad at him. So he changed his two line mates, left Tockett on the ice. Bossy scored again on the first shift. So now it's 2 nothing. Tockett's minus two. He comes to the bench. Keenan's down at the door and won't let him off the ice. Tockett <laughs> got off the ice for the first time six minutes into the game. Bossy had three goals. Tockett was minus three. And the, so the poor um, rocket. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but there was just – he was different than there, – there's more of an aggressive edge that you're seeing that Matthews has. And he's – you know, he'll strip the stick more. and Like, he's so strong in his stick. His, mm -hmm. You know, his stick strength is tremendous. You know, he'll pick the pockets. He'll – and, yes, he has the elite passer. But, hey, so did Bossy and Brian Trachik. And, you know, and they're looking for them all the time. But – He's different, I think, in the breadth of goals that he scores. Bossy was a little more rush-oriented or 
top of the circle on the offside. Like what right winger was hanging out at the top of the circle at the offside in that day and age and who covered him? You know, now you'll see three, the, the, third, the four would go up between the two D quite often to try and mm-hmm. pull the D out. But back then it was like, you know, it'd be my job to cover bossy. And sometimes they'd line me up at left wing just to do that. Cause I was a centerman and I'd be like, where is he? Well, who's supposed to go over there? Like, I don't like, what if I, if I go over there, who's over here? You know? And so just, it was a pleasure to, I, I watched him as a fan. I played against him head to head, just special, but that word kept coming to me last night. Um, you know, elegant and just how graceful he was in, in the way he did his job. Um, listen, we could do this all day, but I we do need to set you free. But before we let you go, Dave, I'm, I'm curious, just as a, sort of jumping off from Mike's question about Austin Matthews, to me, you have such a great perspective on, on what happens in Toronto, right? You live there, you're an Ontario boy, you spent time in the management uh, offices with the Leafs, and, and, and now as, a, as an analyst who looks very closely at Canadian teams, there is something, there's something compelling about this Leaf team on so many levels in, in part because Austin Matthews having a season for the ages is, you know, all the things that he's accomplished, that team is, you know, Marner and the, the rest of the team, the addition of Mark Giordano. And yet it's, there's, there's still so much in front of them in terms of the pressure and in terms of, you know, a team that hasn't won a playoff round since before the 04 or five lockout. When you think of this team and you think of what lies ahead and regardless of who they play in the first round, what are you, are you excited for it? Or what, what do you anticipate over the next three or four or five weeks as we head into the playoffs? Uh, a large part's going to come down to the goaltender. And yeah. I say that, you know, it mm-hmm. just is. And Jack Campbell has come back. He looked really good against Tampa. He had to go into the game last night because of an injury to young um, Schaubert and, so it's going gonna, it's gonna to be whether you get the Jack Campbell of October, November, December. And if you get him, and there was a, s- a real spring to his step against Tampa, which is why I did want to see him go in the game last night. Yeah. And it hasn't been there. It hasn't. And there was last night or two nights ago. So it's going to come down to that. But the pressure on them in the first round will it's, – it's pressure on everybody in the first round. The first round is the hardest round to play by far because you can turn around a season in – you know, in less than two weeks. And, and I've lost to teams that were 35 points behind me in the first, you know, in the first round. Mm-hmm. And so it's going to come down to how they handle that pressure still has to be the bigs. If I'm playing against them, I have to stop 34 and 60 and I let whatever else happens happen. Yeah. It's my focus. Stop those two guys. Yeah. Easier no, said than done. It is. And I, and I, I look at the Leafs and I can't help but think that, making the move to grab Giordano has at least given that locker room a huge sense of, of not just leadership, but of steadiness, you know, and, 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 yeah. and Dave, like, you know how this works. We're so focused on statistics and we're looking for Giordano or anybody else to come in and have six points in eight games. And yeah. am I off base in my thinking that for a player like Giordano, sometimes coming in at a deadline to solidify defense, the points really don't matter as much. You think that's right? Absolutely. It's right. Because he has a compound effect on the guy he's with. Lilligren's been his best since he got there. So you didn't just get one guy. You, you might've got two. 
And you also took pressure off the guy that's playing around him on the left position, whether that's Morgan Riley or Jake Muzzin or, or TJ Brody, because now he can absorb some of the PK minutes. He can absorb maybe half a minute on the power play. He can take a matchup role. So I'm taking a little bit of a hard job away from maybe four or five different guys. And by the way, he's making the centerman's job easier because he's getting the pass a little bit better, a little bit earlier in the slot, in the defensive zone. So many compound factors to his game. Um, you worry just on a, on a standpoint if he's 38 years old and just from a pure physical standpoint of playoff crowd. Like one year we played 26 games in 53 nights. I mean, it's, mm. it's crazy. And it's a grind, man. It's, a, real it's grind. a grind. But what he brings, Mike, you couldn't be more correct in what he brings to a team and to a locker room. And it's shown it's already here in Toronto. Yeah. Good stuff. Great. Dave, listen, if this podcast was eight hours long, we could fill every minute of it with you. No doubt. Yeah. It's a mini series. The mini, it would be. The mini series. <laughs> We're going to go to our regular guest. I think we talked about this day, but I think there, there's gotta be a book somewhere. And anyway, and now you don't even need to go to a ghost author because you know how to write. There's it. a book and it so. won't be written, Scotty. There's a book and it won't be written. <laughs> we can just speak it. That's what podcast form is for. We can go endlessly with it. Anyway, it's been a treat to have you, Dave, and, and uh, continue to look forward to your analysis uh, on the air and your scribblings on Sundays in the uh, Toronto Star. It's part of my routine every week now. So thanks for coming to hang out with Mike and I. It's, it's been great. I'm still can't believe Mike turned you down though. I, I, you imagine what would have happened. I mean, the whole, that's a whole sliding doors thing. If he had gone to Notre Dame, right. Hey, he heard I wasn't a goalie-oriented coach, so he probably made the right decision. <laughs> Nobody was back then. <laughs> That's a good point. That's a good point. Always a pleasure, guys. Hey, uh, we'll jump back and do this at some point, either right before the playoffs or during the playoffs. And it great. would be great to have Thank you. you Dave. So thanks for coming to hang out with us. Take care. We literally, Mike, could go for hours with Dave Poulin. And uh, I, think, I, I think, did I mention he was Frank's Jay Selkie trophy winner? That's something I always forget. And you know, he and I chat you know, pretty regularly just about what's going on. I would, I'd love to pick his brain and, but he is, he's a fascinating guy. And, and uh, it's, I don't know if you, do you ever think about, I mean, you were, you were young, but do you ever think about, geez, what if I, what if I had gone that route instead of St. Lawrence mm-hmm. or like, do you ever think of that? Yeah, I, I do occasionally. And I think I've always been kind of retrospective in the decisions that I made, even as, thinking of, you know, what happened, what would have happened if I'd gone to the OHL? You know, I I had, I remember my OHL draft year having several teams, two or three teams saying, Hey, we're going to take you in the first two rounds if you think you're going to come. And I mean, what a decision that was at 15 or 16, whatever, to just tell them, "I, I think I'm going to college. I wanted to get my education done. I didn't know enough about the hockey world to trust that process of major junior compared to college. And that seemed like the safe route to me. And, um, you know, Notre Dame was, I don't even know how to kind of quantify what it was like back then thinking about it. I was so young, but I just had a lot of respect for Dave from the start. And, and I can truly say like any decision to go there or not had nothing to do with, with Dave at all. Um, I think part of it honestly was just that Notre Dame's a Catholic school. I'm not Catholic. (laughs) And that actually, you know, made a difference to me, but um, I can say this objectively that Dave is one of the people within hockey. And I probably, I should have said to this to him one-on-one at some point, but 
I have looked up to him and respected him and have been so thankful to have the relationship we've had, however sparse it may have been. I mean, we, you know, sit in his office as a 17, 16 year old, whatever it was to realistically 15 years later or something meeting up once again at the American hockey league board of governors meetings. When I came in to represent the PHPA, the professional hockey players association on their executive board. And, and Scott, we stood and talked for an hour, you know, and, and he's a person I want to be around. He's a person that I love speaking with who doesn't ever look down upon anyone. And I mean, my career, it would be easy for people to do that. And it happened with some people. You could tell that some people in hockey just, they didn't want to give me or anybody else the time of the day because I wasn't their, you know, their big prospect. And, and I never had that feeling from him. And even transitioning into broadcasting, he's given me great advice and been, you know, a smiling supporter. And, and that matters, man. You need teammates in this business, even if you don't necessarily work with them hand in hand. You know, you yeah. need somebody in your corner and, and encouraging you and being positive. And yeah, I just, man, I think the world of Dave, I'm, I'm glad that he joined us and, and Scott, it was good on you to grab him for today because, you know, he's, he's got plenty to, to bring to the table and, yeah. you know, this, the comparisons on Bossy and Matthews, just, oh, I mean, phenomenal. Crazy. The perspective there, Scott, is just outstanding and a retrospective of our sport in some ways. Yeah. No, he's, he's about, you know what? It's interesting and not to get too far down the rabbit hole on it though, but, and, and you know this because you, you've had it, you are a successful broadcaster and you've been doing it for a number of years. It's, it, there's a, maybe it's the same in writing. I think probably a little bit less so, but in terms of like the ego element of that environment is real. And, and oh yeah, you know what? Somebody like Dave who could, you know, who could come at you with some swagger, given that he is he, his breadth of knowledge of the game is vast. Second to none. Completely. He's as you point, he's completely open and welcoming. It's it, there is no pecking order. There's no, you don't have to defer to Dave because he is who he is. He would not have that. And it's, it, you know, and the, it's just been a pleasure to deal with him you know, on whatever level it is, a glass of wine or, you know, <laughs> talking for a story or whatever it is, it's, it's always a pleasure. So, all right, let's, uh, speaking of pleasure and speaking of being satisfied, time to remind everyone that DoorDash is a proud sponsor of the Nation Network of Podcasts. Restaurants and more delivered right to your door. I'm not, you know, I haven't heard once again of lobbying for free food and stuff, but I, I, I don't know whether we're going to do a pre-playoff show on daily face-off, or, you know, like we did for trade deadline, which was a ton of fun. But to me, that speaks to DoorDash if we do something like that. So I just throw that out there in case anyone's sponsor, you know, in case anyone well, wants I, my address to send food here, so. Yeah, go. I think it makes it easy if we do another show. It's we get the DoorDash bags to everybody, and we all show what we're what we had. And I mean, you know, we're all looking to be a little more satisfied in life. So yeah. we, the McKenna family, uh, did it with a little bit of Thai cuisine last night. And nice, yeah, DoorDash. You know, I, I was I had a big day yesterday doing a little Sirius XM hosting, and I just couldn't get dinner done. So doop 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 DoorDash, boom. That's it. At all right, door. so I, I, so I'm I'm fascinated. 
a couple of things that definitely want to get to before we, we wrap mm-hmm. up this edition. And, and part of it was Dave alluded to the Leafs game against Tampa and uh, then they go to South Florida. I honestly could not, I, I was keeping my eyes on Carolina Buffalo and, but I could not, I could not believe what was happening in South Florida and sunrise as the Leafs got up five, one, uh, ended up losing, was it six, five or seven, six in uh, seven, six, seven, six in, in overtime. I'm just curious how the angst level in Toronto over the oh. goaltending is, as it, waxes and wanes, but I, I was more, I wanted to broaden it out because, you know, Tampa was sort of meandering along a little bit. Carolina loses in Buffalo last night, not a great outing for them. And they've had a couple of kind of like, eh, you know, they ambling along. The Rangers are actually two points back of Carolina mm-hmm. as we're speaking today. Carolina still got a game in hand. They play at home against Buffalo tomorrow night. I still think Carolina ends up in first in that division in the Metro, but maybe not, but they've sort of gone sideways. Tampa at one point this week had fallen into the second wild card spot, which could have set up an interesting Carolina Tampa first round matchup. Of course, two played in the second round last year. I guess my, I am getting to a question. I swear. Um, (laughs) Do you think it matters for teams that we've known for a long time are going to be in the playoffs. The East has been set. And even in, in teams, you know, I've, you know, St. Louis went a little bit sideways. Minnesota certainly went sideways for a while and now are on fire again. Do you think it matters at this stage of the regular season if you are playing like crap a little bit, especially for a team like Tampa that has, you know, gone back to back? Do you think it matters or, or are those things important in a locker room with now basically 10 games left in the regular season. Do you th- what's the dynamic, do you think? It really matters. Yeah. And Tampa hasn't been bad. They've just been yeah. okay. Yeah. And you have to look at the rest of the Atlantic and the Eastern Conference where, I mean, Florida, Toronto, Boston, yeah, they've been on fire. Yeah. You know, I mean, all three of those teams are 8-2-1 and one in their last 10 games going into last night. Yeah. And that's what you run into now is that teams have got their rosters. They've made their moves at the deadline and you're seeing the real versions of teams. Yeah. It's rare that a team can flip the switch in playoffs. We've seen it before. It can happen by all means, but we live in this world, Scott, that operates on a big bell curve of life <laughs> where you have the normal events in the middle, the high end of the bell curve and the, and the obscure events out on the edges of that bell curve that can happen, but they are not statistically probable right. and not being a statistics major. That I was going to say, one... look at you analytics boy. Nice. Thank you. Uh, that, that is the one thing that stuck with me is the, is the big bell curve of life. I love to use that analogy. Um, but I really think it matters. I, I will say, though, that for a team like Tampa that has as much experience and as much clout and belief in themselves as they do have, they are the team that you look at and go, well, yep, start playoffs, no problem. Yeah. But look at a team like Boston. You think Boston honestly cares who the hell they play in, in playoffs? I don't think it matters at all to them. No. They've been on a tear. They're getting goaltending. The only thing you have to be a little bit worried about uh, it was Pasternak and Trent Frederick both missed game last night. And the team did look different without them against the Red Wings. Oh, Health hey, is going to matter. Yeah. Hampus Lindholm left that game. Yes. Uh, last night, I, I don't have any sense of, you know, whether he's gone long-term, but you're absolutely right. Those, maybe that's the bigger 
factor mm-hmm. in even dry idle leaving in Edmonton, not in the game in Edmonton. You know, you you worry about these things at this yes. point. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, um, Kokaniemi's been out in uh, Carolina for a, a number of games. Ethan Bear, mm-hmm. who I thought had started to play a lot better, um, you know, has been out for the, the Hurricanes, and you know, there's sort of a bit sideways. And you know, it, I, I guess I guess that's right. I, I guess I always think, okay, and and I'm totally on board with the yes, you can't flick the switch, and but I do think there are teams that as long as you have a sense of yourself and a sense mm-hmm. of what needs to be done. And as long as you don't have critical injuries to key parts of your lineup, then, then maybe you can sort of elevate quickly. I don't know if that makes any sense. So Sure. It makes sense. You can, it's just dif- more difficult to do it uh, to just say, man, we're in playoffs. And that's where look at, for instance, Dallas. Yeah. Okay. Dallas has been good all season. At times, they've been great. They really need to be great from here on out to have a prayer in playoffs. Yeah. I mean, they may get they may get into playoffs by being good, but they won't go far by being great. That's a team that I just can't see that. Yeah. Um, but there's other clubs around the league that I think they could if they get in. I even look at Vegas. If Vegas manages to get in, if they could somehow grease this out with all the injuries they've had and they get players off LTIR, anything can happen. You don't know what you're facing there. And I caution people that, that Vegas could still be dangerous if they end up in the dance. So um, I think that's all real. But, you know, Scott, I think we still have to look back to trade deadline. And I I want your perception to this. I I didn't think that the Rangers were – they were my flyer to be a pretty good team in this year and make playoffs. I thought it was the Gerard Gallant effect, and and they had good scoring and goalie. But – Scott, is that team for real now with the moves they made at the trade deadline? Cop looks amazing. Fedrano's filling the net. What's your level of confidence with the Rangers? Could they actually make a run? Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I don't think there's any question. And, and I think those, those moves are, you know, how many times we, you know, we, they've become like, you know, almost I don't want to say iconic is the right term or not, but the Barkley, mm-hmm. Goodrow, Blake Coleman ads in Tampa that solidified a, you know, a part of that lineup that maybe was wanting and, and, and they were, you know, they were rewarded with the Stanley cup. Are the Rangers that kind of team? And it's interesting because Shesterkin has sort of, he's probably playing at, you know, a level that is below the gold standard he set for himself. Um, and yet that was an unobtainable standard to interject exactly. quickly. Yeah, sorry that you aren't <laughs> damn near perfect every single night, but it's been interesting because they seem to, that they seem to be a team that has, has been able to roll through that. I think it speaks to just, you know, how good Gerard Gallant is as a head coach. Cause that's listen, it's been a huge challenge for him coming in for the first year, right from the get go. That team was so young, um, all the changes that were made at the end of last year and through the off season, Chris Drury taking over and then to make, th- you know, three a, a significant four a significant ads. So you've got Mott cop Vetrano up front and Justin Braun on the back end. That's a lot to, it's a big mouthful and yet, okay. <clears throat> you know, it, I just think it's, I think it's going to be fascinating. I did some Pittsburgh radio earlier this week, and I still think it's probably Rangers Pittsburgh. I think, I think Carolina still stays ahead. They have anyway. I think it's I Pittsburgh agree. Rangers. What a fascinating series there. 
if that's what happens, because you've got two teams basically at the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of, you know, where are you going to? You've got Pittsburgh with Malkin Latang on expiring contracts, mm-hmm. trying, you know, the window clearly trying to close itself for trying a to. Yeah, it's trying to. Trying to. But Crosby keeps is, fighting it. Crosby's like playing in an MVP level. Tristan Jari, you know, can he bring it against a young team where can you learn on the fly? Like, can mm-hmm. you can you learn? You know, I think of Carolina going back to 2019, makes the playoffs for the first time in a decade and goes to an Eastern Conference final. Can the Rangers do that kind of thing? And I think they absolutely can. I Honestly, I'm so excited for the playoffs as a whole, but I'm really excited about the East where, you know, as soon as I'll say this, Washington will, they'll win in five, whoever they play the top team (sighs) would be Florida, I think. But Washington to me is, is a step below, but the other seven teams in the East, you can sit down and you can rationalize a scenario where all seven of those teams goes to a Stanley cup final. I, I, I truly believe that. And I'm, I'm pumped for how that's going to unfold. There's a lot of firepower in the East. And I mean, yeah. t- Toronto's the team I just look at and I go, I don't know. I, Cause it's, it's the goalie factor. It, I, I hate that that's the answer, but it's the reality. It's just like Dave said, the other teams and Washington has that to a little bit of an extent as well. I, Samsono, Vanacek, there's question marks, but the rest of these clubs, they're pretty stout and goal, man. Yeah. And, and God, they can score like Florida, t- Toronto last night, seven, six. Like I was thinking back in my career, did I have anything like this? And I could only think of two games. I had one in college that I was on the bench for and my goalie partner, Kevin Ackley played it. It was against our arch rivals freshman year at Clarkson and we lost seven, six, and it may have been an overtime. And I, <laughs> my head was swirling. It was just goal after goal and just terrible hockey up and down the ice. And I remember at the end of the game, Kevin like Kevin's like, a, I mean, man, what a uh, awesome goalie partner. Like Kevin, I think just threw a stick in the air, <laughs> like, <laughs> like straight up. Like he didn't go to smash with post. La- like Campbell did at the end last night. I think j- he just threw his stick in the air. Like he was, that was it. He was surrendering to the game yes. itself. They, they can take on a life for their own. And I had another in pro where I can't remember who I was playing for, but it was against Devin Dubnik and he was with the Springfield Falcons and it was in Springfield. And it's the same thing. It just, it took on a life of its own. And those games, God, they suck for goaltenders. And you saw all four of them in it last night. <laughs> but you want to talk about offensively dangerous. Florida's just yeah. crazy, man. Huberto isn't doing this by himself. He's been outstanding. But Bill Zito's constructed a roster with great trades, with development from within. It's, it's every piece of the pie. In yes. Florida, I just don't know defensively if they're the team. Yeah, I don't, and yeah. I think when push comes to shove, you might see cracks in goaltending there as well. So, if if we could, if we flip it out to the West, Scott, is it just going to be a knockdown dragout fight, and the teams are going to beat each other up so much that they get to the final and get waxed by the East, or are because they've gone through the battles in the West, whoever emerges victorious from that side of the NHL, do they go over? And then just out heavy the East in the finals. Like, yeah. is it's fascinating, isn't it? I do. And I, sometimes you get, I remember I covered the, for a number of years, I, I covered almost all 
Eastern Conference and Pierre Lebrun when we were both at ESPN and then also at the Athletic. Pierre is the Western guy, right? Like we always used to joke there was a statue out in front of the uh, Shark Tank in San Jose, and you know the 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 Kings loved him, and and I did the East. I remember the in 07 and the Senators had. You know, they beaten really good teams to get to the Stanley Cup final. And I think they had a 12-day layoff. It was ridiculous at the end before the 07 final against Anaheim. And I had watched the Senators and they, you know, Alfredson and Heatley and Spezza. And it just, they, I was like, Anaheim, there's <laughs> no chance that Anaheim wins this series, right? I had been... I just had spent a lot of time watching them and was so impressed with that team. Pierre was completely the opposite. He's like, now Anaheim's too heavy, blah, blah, blah. And of course, <laughs> it was over in five. And anyway, that I don't know. I, to, in answer to your question, I don't know how it shakes because I, you know, it, what the West to me is a completely different entity because you've got Colorado. And then the question is, who can beat Colorado? And I mm -hmm. think that. I don't think there's that kind of dialogue in the East. It's, it's just different. Do, do you agree or? Yeah, I agree. What do you think of the LA Kings? I look at you teeing me up here. I had a chance to talk to uh, Todd McClellan and uh, you are, look at you, you're the best. And I'm going to write about that later today. It will be out on daily face off sometime, but, um, and it was great to catch up with Todd um, because it's a team that it, now I know you've liked them. You, you always, you, you I picked them as a playoff the team this year. Yeah, I picked no. them as a playoff team this year. They were yeah. the team in the West that I thought they're going to do it. And the Rangers are my team in the East that, yeah. uh, but I also picked the Winnipeg Jets to win Stanley Cup here. So I think it's all null. I wasn't even going to mention that, you know, but, but no, you, the Kings are, and, and what's interesting about the Kings, and I think they'll probably end up playing Edmonton in the first round, but interesting matchup for, for both teams. And they sort of go back and forth earlier in the week. Kings would have had home ice advantage. Now the Oilers have jumped in front. And of course the Kings have done it uh, a little bit under the radar, um, you know, not very sort of tinkering move. Uh, Troy Stetcher comes over at the trade deadline um, and have been just crippled with injury mm -hmm. all year long. All year long, critical pieces of that lineup have not been available to Tom McClellan and his staff. And it was interesting to talk to him about, you know, basically, I said, are you looking for, you know, do you look forward to the playoffs or do you have to make sure you don't look too far? And he's, we, we are in the playoffs now. Every night we play, it's like the playoffs for us because that's our mindset. And because we've got players who are, are playing in roles that they wouldn't normally be playing in. And he, I thought it was interesting. You talked about how, you know, I, how you coach differently mm. when you've got a bunch of guys that have been pressed into service because of injuries and other circumstances. And he said, you have to, we have had to take a gentler tone, right? Like basically they're not crushing guys mm. if they're making mistakes because they, in some ways, they don't have guys who can come in. It's not like you can say, if you keep playing like that, we're going to have to take you out of the lineup. They might not have anybody else to go into the lineup. And so he talked about having, trying to coach differently to, to explain mistakes and to correct mistakes that you wouldn't have had, you wouldn't do if you had a healthy lineup. You, you would do it differently. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was kind of interesting. So. Well, it is. And I, I admire that about Tom McClone, that he is looking at his team objectively and thinking, OK, I do need to alter my approach, given what my lineup is. Yeah. And 
it's not just a matter of who's in the lineup from an emotional standpoint. It's also the way you're going to play on the ice. Like coaches do need to make adjustments throughout a season. And in a playoff series, if you can't adjust, I, I don't think you make it. And, and these aren't major tactical things. We're not talking about going from zone coverage to man on man, or you know what I mean? Zone to man on man yeah, in yeah. the middle of a series, but we're talking about, really digging in on what another team is doing and finding ways to counter that and beat them within a series. How do you improve? How do you find those tiny areas that you can be better? Um, and that's the game within the game, Scott. Yeah. And that's why I loved playoffs. I loved doing the homework going into a playoff series. And, you know, I remember the, the two runs that I had in the American hockey league to the Calder cup finals when it got to the, you know, the conference final and then to the actual finals, I was calling every coach and player that I knew or scout that I that I could possibly find from around the league, old guy and goalie friends. Like I wanted every piece of knowledge <laughs> and I loved it. I, I maybe I'm a researcher at heart and I don't want to admit that and why I enjoy kind of what I'm doing now, but not every team has that within them. Yep. And we've seen teams that refuse to change what they do and keep thinking eventually they'll break through and go, and it hasn't happened. So um, I'm, I'm fascinated to see how this shakes out because we're going to have a heavy team from the West. We're going to have a fast team from the East. But I think it, it, the, the mix is what's going to win it. Yeah. It um, always is. All right. Before we go, let's, let's close on this note. I, uh, I, I was, I, I guess, I don't know whether I was surprised or not, but certainly I love the idea that Ryan Getzlaff mm. just says, you know what, this is going to be it. And, you know, we're just, we're going to talk about it, <laughs> but at the end, this is the end for me. And I've always, you know, I, you know, I don't, I don't overstate my relationship with Ryan Getzlaff. We spent time together, playoff runs and Olympics and stuff like that. And I, you know what, I've always enjoyed, you know, chatting with him, very thoughtful and honest and, you know, like I've just a, a, a guy that, you know, he knew his job and did it exceptionally well. And I will tell you the thing that I will always think about with Ryan Getzlaff is that, after the NHL paused its season because of COVID, the NHL started to, they, I think, you know, the, I thought it was an interesting way to approach it, but the NHL decided that they would make some star players, high profile players on across the NHL available by zoom. And it was really the start of the zoom life that we lived during the pandemic. And Ryan Getzlaff was one of the first, and he was in his house, wherever it is out near Anaheim, wherever his house is. And, but he was talking, he built a chicken coop and he had chickens and geese. And, and, and in the middle of the Zoom call, he just gets up with the camera. He goes, well, come on, I'll show you. And so off we go out into his backyard. I think he, one of his kids was driving a golf cart and drove by Ryan as he was out showing us his He's a chicken coop. And I was like, <laughs> that was outstanding. And so now when I think of Ryan Getzlaff and I think of his retirement life and whatever that may lead to, I will think of him enjoying his chicken coop in California. So there you go. Well, That's, yeah. I, so I, I want you um, give me some, give me your thoughts on Ryan Getzlaff before we close. 
Well, I'm jealous that he's going to have a never ending supply of eggs. Um, <laughs> free range, pasture rage. I don't know. Yeah. We're going to see him in a straw hat and overalls looking like the clampets. Um, when I think of Brian Getzloff, I think of somebody that played hard, played the right way when, I mean, that, which is always such a cliche, but he really did. That's why he lasted so long. And I think he was a, a much better distributor of the puck than people will ever realize. He was one of the premier passers in the game and he played with an edge. And to me, he's a hall of famer. I mean, Stanley cup captain of a team for 10 years, which to me matters an awful lot. couple of, yeah. uh, I believe two gold medals with Olympic team Canada games. in the yep. Olympics. Um, he was, he was a captain's captain. He was a player that you wanted to rally around. And that team had a lot of success underneath him. And for him to walk away the way he is to say, Hey, this is it. This is going to be the last hurrah. I admire that so much because that's kind of how I did it. I didn't want somebody to tell me I had to stop. And he had a resurgent year. He was excellent this year, but at 36, 37, you start to wonder, can I really spend this much time on the trainer's table? What's the return in it for me? Especially when you just, when you clearly want to be an Anaheim duck. It's not like he has ideation ideas of going somewhere else to greener pastures. And that's not him. So I love it that he's walking away on his terms, that he gets to do it his way. It reminds me of Arrivederci Mario. Like it was <laughs> the last year of Mario Andretti as an IndyCar driver. And it was, you know, on the side of his car, Arrivederci Mario is his last year. And that always kind of stuck out with me is that bowing out of this game gracefully yeah. is really difficult for some people. Yeah. Some people have to be told to hang them up. And I think that leads to problems later. I think that isn't the, I, I think when you do it on your terms and you've made the decision yourself, it's much easier to find peace with it. Yeah. And, and that's where I am. Do I miss putting the pads on Scott? Oh God. I miss, I miss the pain of getting hit by pucks and being sore the next day as, as goofy as that is. No, I do. I miss the pain of being a pro hockey player. Um, but I'm also completely content with my career. Yeah. I was ready for it to end. And I'm happy for Ryan Getzloff that it, he's at that same stage and he gets to enjoy these last several games, much like his friend and teammate Ryan Miller did last year. Yeah. So it's very cool. And congrats to him. I didn't play many games against him, but it was definitely fun to be in the same building to watch him from the backup role and a couple times on the ice. An amazing career. Well said, my friend. Well said, my friend. And I'm, I'm glad that you uh, have found uh, the you, the exit strategy that worked for you because it allowed us to work together. So yes, that works out. Uh, that works out on all fronts, at least for me. So, um, <laughs> well, me as well. How would I learn to write if it wasn't for you, Scott? <laughs> all right, next week we'll be that much closer to the start of the playoffs. Excited for that. Um, and as always, good work by you and. Can't wait till we uh, reconvene a week from now. I am looking forward to it. I think by next week, we're going to have a really clear vision of this playoff. Thanks for listening to The Suitcase and The Scribe, a member of the Nation Network of Podcasts and delivered by DoorDash. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to never miss an episode. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.